Please open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 to 18. A week ago, I was helping debrief some Mission to the World missionaries coming back from the field. And I just looked out and they were so tired, so discouraged. And it brought back memories of our coming back from Costa Rica. And we just were really discouraged and really disappointed. God had done some amazing things while we were in Costa Rica. We had helped plant four church plants. One of our church plants had a handful of baptisms the year before we left. Another had nine. And a third had twelve. We really saw God working, and I was using third millennium to help train these church planters. And it was just exciting to see God at work. Yet at the same time, it felt like our world was falling apart. Several of the churches where we train leaders pulled away from our new denomination. Our mother church changed locations several times, and each time we lost our building, we dwindled down to a remnant. Several leaders that I poured my life into were having serious marriage difficulties, and after we came back for home ministry assignment, one of those leaders uh, had a divorce. Two other pastors quit the ministry, and some of my closest friends decided not to be part of our movement. On top of all this, two of our children went through some really traumatic circumstances that continue to affect them to this day. And I found myself asking, God, why? Why are you doing this? We felt betrayed by some of our own team members. I was having back problems from being hit by a motorcycle. And as the things began to pile up, I was overwhelmed by these ups and downs of ministry. And one night I couldn't sleep. And I was laying there. And God talked to me and told me to read this passage. That doesn't sound very Presbyterian. But it was almost like he just was audibly talking to me. And as I read this passage, I just began to weep. You see, Elijah experienced those ups and downs of ministry. He could have written some pretty awesome prayer letters. Just think about it. Being fed by the ravens, the widows, oil and flour didn't run out. God has a miraculous provision. He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prays and it rains. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. Then he has the showdown on the Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 and some prophets of Asherah. And it's a showdown between God, Yahweh, the covenantal God of his people, 
in Baal. Now, Baal was the god of fertility, the god of rain. And so when Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, it was attacking that idol. There was drought. There was no food. And in that, he was showing that he is God. By the way, that's what Elijah's name means. The Lord is God. The Lord is my God. And you hear in the, at the end of that story where he calls down lightning, which was one of the main attributes of Baal, and consumes the sacrifice. And so Elijah's feeling pretty good. He sees the power of God at work and he runs down to the capital. And I, then we come to this passage and there's just this juxtaposition between that great victory and this incredible disappointment where he's throwing himself down and saying, I wish I was dead. So what's going on in Elijah's heart? I think God is using this not only to shake up the idols of his people, to confront the idol of Baal, but he's confronting the idols of Elijah's own heart. He forgets his own name. The Lord is my God. And oftentimes in ministry, we get our focus off of God and onto ourselves. We start relying on ourselves and we're doing it. And then when it doesn't work out the way we plan, we get discouraged. I think that's what's happening here in this passage. And God is saying, I am the Lord your God. You're not God. This isn't about you, Elijah. It's about me and my glory. You see, God will allow us to go through disappointment to crush our idols, those things that we treasure more than him, in order to reveal himself to us. He will do whatever it takes so that we will rest in his unfailing love. Have you ever felt like Elijah? I've had enough, Lord. What do you do when it feels like the world is crashing down on top of you? When the weight of disappointment causes you to cry out, enough! In this passage, we see that God reveals himself to Elijah in his disappointment and shows him that he is enough. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Kings chapter 9, 19, verses 9 to 18. This is God's holy word. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets. With the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before me, before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains 
and broken to pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. And after the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, Abimelech, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is God's word. You may be seated. God, we come to you and we just ask that you would come and speak through that powerful word, that you would whisper, that you would confront the idols of our hearts, that we may depend more fully on you and rest in your unfailing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About 10 years ago, Ibrahim experienced something what Elijah felt. He had become a Christian and all of a sudden he lived in a country where it was illegal and he began to be persecuted. Not only that, there was a price on his head and he had two or three miraculous escapes where they were actually there to kill him and he got away. And you can imagine, like Elijah, he's just frightened. He's been running and he ran from his country to the next country and came to another country to seek asylum. And there he met some of the Mission to the World missionaries who embraced him, who comforted him, who provided a home for him. You may not feel that direct persecution of Ibrahim. But we all feel despair. We all feel hardship. When we feel that disappointment and the hardship and the weight of the world on our shoulders, God reveals his sufficiency to meet our needs. In verses 5 to 8, we see that God graciously meets Elijah's physical needs. Elijah's exhausted. He runs down and beats Ahab. And run, I mean, it's just amazing. He runs down and beats the chariot. Then he goes from the Israel in the north 
and goes all the way to Judah in the south. And then he continues down into the desert, into the Negev. That's a long way to run. And when he gets there, he throws himself under a tree. And he says, Lord, take my life. He's physically exhausted. And what does God do? We see that he doesn't chastise Elijah. He comes and he, and he provides for him. He physically ministers to him. It says the angel of the Lord puts his hand on him, gives him something to eat, says rest, sleep. And he does this two times. Oftentimes you'll have missionaries coming back home. And they're exhausted. And the time of home ministry assignment is often one of frantic going from church to church. That's one of the hardest things for my family. is because they, they, my kids just are being dragged around from place to place. They're not settled. They're anxious. They've been in the car for 12 hours and they're hitting each other. And, and you get and there's all these new people and they're all staring at them and everybody knows their name. And they're like, I, I think I'm supposed to remember you, but I don't. And they're just physically tired. One of the best things you can do when missionaries come is to just give them peace. Give them rest. But oftentimes we're not good at resting. You, you look at that frenetic energy that pushes Elijah and he's running and he just collapses. Oftentimes, missionaries get addicted to busy. You're, you're always running on that adrenaline. I remember when we were on the border, and just, just the excitement of, I mean, people were dying all over, and, and it was just, it was life and death, and it was so exciting. You had that camaraderie of, these are my brothers. We're going to stand in the face of darkness. And it was exciting. God brought 40 people in one year to the church plant we were working with in Juarez. In the midst of that darkness. And yet, you get addicted to that adrenaline and living at that high state of alert. And you can begin to just add more and more stuff to your schedule so that you stay busy. I think this is the sin of self-reliance. We, we begin to rely on ourselves and we're going to do it and we're going to have this program and we're going to have that program. And we need to come and rest. I struggle with that sin of self-sufficiently, and yet God has given us one day out of seven to just stop, to be still, and know that He is God. And I think that's so important. And I encourage you that God is there and He takes your physical ailments seriously. Many of you are, are grieving the loss of loved ones as we prayed. And when we did grief share with people that have lost loved ones, it's, it's important just to remember to eat, drink, sleep, those common things that we take for granted in times of crisis. Those are really important. Those rhythms of taking a time each day to be in God's presence. And to know that he is the Lord. Oftentimes my busyness is a, a defense mechanism. 
I don't really want to stop and reflect. If any of you are familiar with the Enneagram, that's got pros and cons. It's a really big fad right now. I'm a two. You know, and a two is always helping and serving. And I'm just driven to perform and to do those things. And and oftentimes, in my marriage even, I, I can say, I will do these things for you instead of having intimacy, of just opening up and being vulnerable. So my busyness can be a form of, of defense. And oftentimes I think we do that with God. We are doing so much for God. And God says, I don't want your, you to do things for me. I want to be there for you. That radically changed worship for me. Do you come here to worship? To give God something? Or to receive something from Him? To receive His presence? To just be with him. And to be with his people. He's given you this time, people of God, to not be self-reliant, but to come and say, fill me up. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. But God's not only sufficient to meet our physical needs, he meets our emotional needs as well. In verse 10, we see that Elijah's struggling with self-pity. Just notice sometime how many times you hear, I, me. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. When we're facing disappointment, we can start feeling like we're alone. For our family, that was one of the hardest things about being on the mission field. We've been doing this for about 13 years now, and in our friendships, and our, even our relationship with our family, has become distant. We have good relationships and good friendships in other places, but no matter how good I was in Spanish, it's so hard to share your heart. And for really to be known and to know people intimately. We left our support system in our community. And although we had good national friends, we always felt like outsiders. You're never part of the family. And then to make matters worse, the difference in, in the areas we were working with, of, they looked to us as the rich Americans. And so it always felt like they were wanting something from you. And so it's really hard to have a friendship and a true opening of your heart when you don't have that equality and coming just equal friends. And you're like, okay, are they really my friend? Are they really? What's going on here? Have you ever come to that point of isolation and despair? No one understands me. No one has faced what I'm going through. No one can help me. My problems are just too great. Maybe you're caring for a loved one who's sick or incapacitated. You keep giving and giving and feel like the rest of the family is not doing their part. Maybe you stood up to your friends when they were doing something wrong. 
And now you're feeling shunned for your stance on the truth. Maybe you're doing a great work at job at your job and you're being overlooked for that promotion. Maybe you kept yourself pure for Mr. Right, but Mr. Right's never come. And now you're facing that awful feeling that you might be alone for the rest of your life. As we see in this passage, God steps into our lives and he shows us that he is there and he is pursuing us with his unfailing love. You are not alone. Here in this passage when he's saying, I, even I, am alone. And they're seeking my life. God at the end says, there are still 7,000 faithful believers who have not bowed down to Baal. You are not alone. God puts us into community. Jesus Christ, your older brother, has experienced that same rejection. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Even his own brothers and sisters didn't understand him. He felt that betrayal of close friends. He understands. He has come near to us in our weakness so that he can identify You are not alone. Emmanuel is with us and he has given us his spirit, but he's also given us a body. He's given us one another. Many of our counseling problems would disappear if the church would do better at providing true community. I was reading Resilient Ministry with a a pastor in North Africa recently. And... And it was just, it's hard because especially in an honor-shame culture, it's hard for the pastors to show weakness. They have to have the ones that have everything all together. And there's that power distance. And so, who are you going to depend on? Who are you going to rely on? Who are you going to share your struggles with? But sometimes we do the same thing in our church. Church, here, can be the most, one of the most lonely places. We should be getting along, but there's factions and divisions. If people really know what was going on, they wouldn't accept me. I just encourage you all in your shepherding groups to be honest, to be open, to manifest God's unfailing love to one another. This was one of those things that was really hard for Ibrahim. You see, Ibrahim, when he was running away for his life, his wife and son chose not to go with him. And his wife married a a devout Muslim man and forced the son to, to disown his father. We'll call him Isak. And so he this this man is not only running for his life, he's feeling all alone. And his family has been disconnected with him. And, and he comes to another country and he, they incorporate him into a body, into the church. And yet, in a communal setting, in a collective setting, you do everything with your family. 
And so when you go to church and they just have Sunday and maybe Wednesday fellowship dinner and, you know, maybe a Bible study. For somebody coming from a Middle Eastern context, that's not community. It's more like the early church when they met together day by day, when they broke bread together. They did everything. And, and some of the most sweet fellowship I've experienced is in, in places where the Christians are persecuted in a minority. And they're coming together not as a ritual, but as a necessity. They need each other to keep going on. They need each other. They need this community just to stand, just to go to work, just to face the rejection. Brothers and sisters, we need to experience that community with one another. God not only meets our physical needs and our emotional needs, He also meets our spiritual needs. See, I I think Elijah was also struggling with a little bit of self-righteousness. In verse 10 and verse 14, he repeats, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. In the NIV, it says, I'm zealous. If any of you know me, my family knows me. You know, when I was a kid, I played football. And I'm not the biggest guy. But they used to call me Rudy. You ever see the movie Rudy? You know, Rudy's just this, the short little guy, and he, and he, but he had a lot of heart, and he played with zeal. I'm not very big. I'm not very eloquent. I rely a lot on my zeal. I'm passionate, but oftentimes our passion can lead us to self righteousness. It's all about what I'm doing for God. We feel the power of God working through us, and it's easy to start taking credit. And if we're not careful, we can start to think that God owes us special treatment because of our sacrifice. Then when things don't go our way, and terrible things happen, we become disappointed with God and begin to question His character. Instead of being intimate, we distance ourselves from Him. When these bad things happen to my kids, I find myself being really angry. God, I left everything to serve you. How could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? In my self-righteousness, I began to question the goodness of God. Has your disappointment ever caused you to question His goodness? I sacrificed everything and homeschooled and and sent them to family-centered youth group and did everything right. And my children still walked away from the Lord. Maybe you've sacrificed years in your marriage, but it's not fulfilling. You try to connect, but inside you feel lonely and neglected. You know this isn't what marriage was meant to be. Do you believe that God loves you enough? That he will continue to disappoint those good desires, those right desires, in order to break you of your pride? 
brothers and sisters, the last two years have been a, a breaking for me. A breaking. It's not the big things we do for God that bring Him glory. It's Him at work in our brokenness. So what do we do? God not only reveals us to us Himself and our, His sufficiency to pl- provide for our needs, but He reveals His very presence. Instead of getting God's wrath for His self-focus and self-centeredness, God graciously reveals Himself. And He gives Elijah Himself. Look in verses 11 and 12. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And later it says he's not in the earthquake, he's not in the fire. But after the fire was the sound of that low whisper. I think over the last two years, I realized that I was looking for God in a spectacular I wanted the earthquake and the whirlwind and the fire. And I had seen God do amazing things. But it's in that mundane, day-to-day faithfulness that God most often shows up. The Bible doesn't say why he didn't appear in the spectacular, but I think it's because he's trying to teach Elijah something. He wanted something good. He wanted his people to repent and to come back to God. But God had different plans. Do you want God to come and do something miraculous and you get frustrated when you don't see it happening? We struggle with sin and we want God to show up and give us immediate healing. And take away our struggle. We have physical ailments and it's like, Lord, please take this away from me. And yet, like Paul, God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's in that everyday means of grace that God works. As we're studying counseling, it's, it's those little choices we make each day those little practices, those means of grace, spending time focusing, meditating on God and on His Word. And in that small voice, in His Word, through that power, He comes and He transforms us day by day. Listen to His voice this week. Look to Him to reveal Himself to you as He exposes our sin, manifests His grace, And gives us the power and transforms us into the image of Christ. It's oftentimes in these disappointing times that God reveals his glory. You see, he's at work. Elijah had a great plan. He wanted God's people to repent. He was zealous for God's glory. But it wasn't going to happen in the way Elijah wanted it to. In verses 15 to 18, he commissions Elijah to 
anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and Jehu to be king over Israel and Elisha to be king over, to be the prophet in his place. What does anointing a pagan king have to do with bringing revival to God's people? God is going to judge his people and eventually send them into exile. That's not what Elijah wanted. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Even Jesus had to submit to his Father's plan. And in Gethsemane, he said, Not my will, but yours be done. The Lord is God. You see, God's sovereignty protects his glory. You see, he's the one that messes up our plans. He's the one at work doing things that we never expected. We wanted to go back to Costa Rica. We had envisioned that was our home. And yet God diverted us. We went through this counseling training and MTWs asked us to work counseling and shepherding workers in the, in the Muslim world. We've experienced crushing darkness. God has changed me. I used to be very overly optimistic. And just, I just, I love the impressionist paintings. I was with my kids in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and there was this Monet. And just, I love those, all the colors and the bright. But I'm not very detailed. And yet it was, it was interesting because in the room next door, there was Rembrandt. And so you have this juxtaposition of, of Monet here and Rembrandt here. Mm, there's a lot of darkness in those Rembrandt pictures. And yet, as I stood there and looked at it, it was the browns and blacks in Rembrandt's paintings that allowed the light to shine. And it just brought everything into clarity. Because I've been experiencing this disappointment over the last two years. God's given me a palette of darker hues. He's allowing me to, to lean in to those areas that I, I did not like to grieve. I didn't want to have sorrow. And as I walk alongside other missionaries who are going through sorrow, other national partners, people, refugees coming from other countries, I can lean into their sorrow and I am an incarnation of Christ, giving them hope. And through that darkness, the light of Christ shines so much more brilliant. So even though Elijah didn't get to see God in the, in the heroic, he eventually gets the expectations of his heart, those desires of his heart met. Did he get the fire? Did he get the whirlwind? Yeah, we see later, God takes him up in a whirlwind, and he got the dramatic. It wasn't what he was expecting, but he got that chariot of fire. He saw the amazing 
thing in 2 Kings chapter 2. God sovereignly exceeds our expectations. He gives us those desires of his heart. And ultimately, we see Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9. And he sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And he says, Elijah, you wanted my people Israel to repent. That wasn't my plan, but through Jesus Christ, I am bringing people from every tribe and every language to repent. My picture is so much bigger than yours, and I will not share my glory. Brothers and sisters, let that light shine. He will exceed your expectations. And you have a part to play in that unfolding of His glory. The Lord is God. All authority has been given to Him on heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.